Mr. Darden, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Now, you've been one of the best-known lawyers in America for 30 years. Why seek the bench now? Well, I think it's time for me. You know, I, I think uh, judges ought to be experienced or have experience. And now that I'm in the 44th year uh, of my legal career, 44 years as a member of the the California Bar, you know, I, I've been on both sides of the, uh, the council table as a, a prosecutor, as a defense attorney. Uh, I've been a law professor, associate law professor at a law school here. I continue to, uh, to teach uh, criminal law and crime scene investigation at Santa Monica Community College, you know, and I've done so much and I've seen so much. And I, I think that with experience and even age, okay, uh, comes wisdom. And uh, uh, I just think it's the right time uh, for me personally. And I think it's the right time for the law. I think, I think LA law needs someone like me on the bench with that experience and, and someone who I, I like to think of myself as being someone who has the courage to do the right thing under the law. Why, at the outset of your career, did you go towards prosecution, go towards uh, litigating cases on that side of the aisle? I will tell you, when I came out of uh, Hastings Law School in San Francisco, I wanted to be a labor lawyer. And uh, I applied for a job with the NLRB. And NLRB jobs, the National Labor Relations Board jobs, were hard to get. And imagine it's 1980 where mortgage, mortgage interest rates are 16% and we're in the middle of a recession. And, and uh, I finally got a job with the NLRB, but it was in Los Angeles. And so I moved to Los Angeles with the, and joined the NLRB. And my salary at the time was $15,000 plus. Dollars, and I had, a, I had a newborn daughter. Uh, back up in Northern California. I had a newborn daughter back up in Northern California, and I couldn't afford to support my daughter. And I looked for a better job. And so I, I looked in the legal newspaper and I saw an advertisement, deputy DAs. And guess what? The annual salary was 25800 So, of course, I applied. Um, and and um, and that began my career as a prosecutor. It's not how I thought uh, things would uh, start out for me. It's not what I planned. It's you know it was life taking me in that direction. Did you always want to be a trial lawyer? Well, I always admired trial lawyers. You know, and people say they want to be a trial lawyer until they get in trial. Uh, I know you've been in trial, and and you know that it is very taxing. Um, it requires a special skill, uh, so, but I admired the great trial lawyers of the 60s and the 70s, you know, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Of course, there were a number of political trials and uh, just some fantastic uh, uh, trial lawyers back then. And yeah, I liked that idea. I liked the idea of being a trial lawyer and being a civil rights lawyer, too. But uh, I never imagined that. Uh, um, trying cases would, would be what I did for the next 40 plus years. What does it take to be a good trialer? Practice and preparation. Practice and preparation. Um, I don't think anybody goes into their first trial being a great lawyer. And all of us who try cases, we know, you know who the neophytes are when they first show up in the courtroom. And I think that uh, 
I think that you have to uh, pay attention, prepare, uh, prepare, uh, prepare, but you have to work. You have to work on the skills that are necessary to be a good trial lawyer. Not everybody can conduct a thorough uh, uh, or, or an appropriate uh, direct examination, let alone cross-examination. I think you have to practice those things. And I think you have to know the rules of evidence. You have to be able to think on your feet. One of the things I see in trials all the time is I see, I see uh, these lawyers going at it and one lawyer objects. And before the judge can even rule, the other lawyer says, okay, I'll withdraw the question. I'm like, what the heck? No, if you object to me and the judge sustains the objection and I think it's wrong, I'm going to ask them the same question. And if the judge tells me not to ask the same question, I'm going to ask the same question 13 different ways until I uh, get an answer uh, and, and ask the question in the form that the court would prefer. Um, and I think that that takes skill and, and training and experience. I think good trial lawyers uh, don't allow themselves to be to be ruffled or to be distracted. Now, you were initially assigned to gangs, my understanding is, and then special investigations. What were those two bureaus designed to do? Well, I was assigned to the hardcore gang unit in the DA's office in the uh, uh, early to mid uh, 1980s. And, and in Los Angeles, let me tell you, uh, during that time period, the homicide rate the rate, uh, frequency of gang shootings was just unimaginable, uh, far worse uh, than we see today. And so in the gang unit, you were assigned as a prosecutor 15 cases, which included a minimum of 10 murder cases. Uh, all the cases were life cases, meaning the defendants were facing uh, life sentences. And, you know, back then I put on a bulletproof vest, grabbed my little... Uh, 380 semi-automatic pistol when I go out with the LAPD and the sheriff's department and I'd be right there at the back door, the third guy in, uh, 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 executing search warrants. But, uh, you know, our, our, our posture was to do everything that we could do to protect the community and stamp out as much gang violence as we could. In special investigations, we investigated officer-involved shootings. And we also investigated in custody uh, uh, deaths of inmates. So um, I spent years uh, out there on the street, at the scene, uh, participating uh, in the crime scene investigations. Um, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we rooted out a lot of bad cops back then. And we prosecuted some in some cases. And in other cases, we provided the evidence that was needed to uh, cause uh, an officer to be disciplined if not terminated, uh, you know, based on what we perceived as administrative uh, or legal misconduct. How has policing changed in California since that time over these past few decades? Well, you know, um, you know, that's a good question because in, when I joined the DA's office in the 1980s, the police chief was Daryl Gates. The LAPD ran this thing called Operation Hammer where they would essentially send in 100 units into a, you know, 10, 10 square block area and literally stop everyone and everything moving, uh, proning people out on, in the street and on the sidewalk. Uh, it was a, a very heavy-handed form of law enforcement. Uh, I thought at the time that it... Uh, violated the rights of, 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 of average citizens. And it was that kind of attitude 
uh, treatment, uh, you know, by police back then that I think contributed to the uh, 1992 riots after uh, after the Rodney King verdicts. Um, today, there's more community policing. I think the relationship, really, really, in LA um, between uh, communities of color, I think it's certainly much better than it was uh, 30 uh, years ago. But you know, a lot has happened in law enforcement, and you know, we've passed laws in California to ensure that defendants charged with crimes uh, receive all of the. Uh, uh, evidence that they ought to receive, including exculpatory evidence. They've made it a felony for prosecutors to withhold that evidence. And uh, obviously under Brady, if the police uh, withhold exculpatory evidence, that uh, that taints the prosecution's case and it taints the prosecution. Uh, I, I think that there is a greater appreciation uh, for the community in, in terms of, of law enforcement today. Um, you know, I, I, I spoke to some uh, some deputies yesterday, and um, and I know that a lot of law enforcement officers in this community and all across the country really feel like they're underappreciated and under siege, um, which I don't think is necessarily the case. But I think there's a greater awareness and greater appreciation between law enforcement and the communities they serve today. There has to be. I mean, after what we saw with George Floyd and some of the other uh, really uh, outrageous incidents and events we've seen over the past five years. Uh, I think it's put law enforcement on notice. Um, and uh, I think a lot of departments have taken notice. But of course, we still see things that we don't approve of and conduct that we don't approve of. And when we see it, um, you know, we try to root out the problem and root out the problem officers. You mentioned a minute ago prosecutorial misconduct as a problem that persists. Um, prosecutorial discretion is a loud phrase, um, and that is because prosecutors have so much authority, so much subjective decision-making power. Do you see that as problematic? Is there any way to fix it or at least curb it to some degree? Well, I don't see it as problematic. I can tell you that I've practiced in different states and obviously uh, practiced all across California. And, uh, you know, in every county, um, the terminology is different. The, the attitude is different. Some more conservative uh, than others. Some prosecutors more conservative than others. I mean, I'm in L.A. County. If I go to the west, uh, there's Ventura, uh, which is, I think, more conservative. To the south is Orange County. I, I think they are more conservative. Riverside, San Bernardino to the east. Also, I, I think that they're more conservative than we are in Los Angeles. But overall, for me, in my experience as a criminal law defense attorney over the past uh, uh, 25 years, um, I typically see all, uh, deputy DAs, uh, prosecutors, and even assistant U.S. attorneys uh, exercising their discretion in, in, in an appropriate way. Um, I rarely encounter situations where uh, the prosecutor is hostile to me and my client, and I rarely encounter situations where what they want is just so far over the top that uh, you know that I have to question or, or be concerned about their their own uh, prosecutorial bias. I think we do pretty good, uh, pretty good here. Uh, I, I think as a lawyer, you have to do, develop a reputation. Um, 
amongst prosecutors. I mean, I think most prosecutors know that I'm a straight shooter, uh, that I mean what I say, uh, that I'm a good trial lawyer, that I'm not afraid, and that I will do, you know, what I have to do and what and what is required of me. Uh, you know what? Um, you know I took an oath, and I'm going to live up to that oath, and and I'll fight. And I think when everybody understands who you are, uh, when when uh, when prosecutors understand that uh, they can trust what you say, you know, when you build up a relationship and even a reputation, I think that helps a lot too. Uh, but by and large, I don't have a big, big problem with prosecutorial discretion. Now, here in Los Angeles County, uh, the district attorney is George Gascon. Uh, he is a progressive uh, district attorney. Um, he is he's under siege by his own deputies. You know, a lot of a lot of folks uh, don't buy into his program uh, in terms of uh, reformative justice. Uh, but for the most part, uh, I think we do pretty good in Los Angeles, quite frankly. You know, um, you know, my hat's off to the court, the bench, and to uh, to the prosecution uh, side of the bar. What criminal justice issue do you see as most problematic these days in California and elsewhere? Perhaps is it bail reform? Is it discovery? Is it policing? Is it something else? You know. Um, that is a question that that's a book that is a book unto itself because, um, and I'm kind of smiling about it because every time I think about it and, and, you know, and folks ask me this question in, in a variety of different ways and forms, and, and I'll be honest with you, it is one of the most complicated questions and issues, uh, imaginable here in California. You know, we have uh, a legislature that is hell-bent on reformative justice. And they have enacted laws, which uh, oftentimes, I think, are entirely appropriate and uh, and fair and equitable. Um, and now we're, we're at this stage, we're in the midst of all of this social justice reform on the one hand. Um, and then there are all these other factors that are playing into all of this. You know, in the California uh, uh, Department of Corrections in the prison system, um, you know, because of Proposition 47 and other programs, inmates are not doing as much time as they used to do. Um, we have reduced uh, 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 certain crimes from felonies to misdemeanors, like personal possession. Uh, of, uh, of narcotics, uh, we've we've elevated the elevated the amount of money required to cause a uh, theft to become a felony. You'd have to steal uh, an item uh, valued at more than nine hundred and fifty dollars for that theft to, uh, you know, constitute a felony. Um, we are focusing on uh, mental health and veterans' issues and. And, um, and and judges now have the power to grant judicial diversion, um, meaning that not everybody has to plead guilty or go to jail or go to prison. That you know they can work on in programs to rehabilitate themselves. And we have all of this social justice reform on the one hand, and at the same time we are seeing uh, property crimes being committed, you know, by groups of forty in the middle of the afternoon in the presence of a hundred witnesses uh, while they're on a 1080p quality surveillance cameras. And so we're seeing people 
really undermine the criminal law, and I think undermine uh, the restorative justice effort, uh, because these people don't expect to go to jail uh, because of new laws in California relative to uh, to bail, the posting of bail or not in cases uh, involving misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. So we have all of these things going on, and I think law enforcement is, you know, feels like they have their hands tied. Um, I, you know, it's just, uh, I don't, I don't know how we, how we work through this because we can't exist in a, um, in the current condition, um, in the present condition, at least where people are committing crimes wholesale as if there is no consequence. Um, I watched a video uh, a couple of weeks ago, a mob of people rushed into a bakery in Compton. And of course they took the cash register, but they took a lot of other stuff too. And you know, it's a small business, uh, family owned business as, as I recall. And you know, and they're on surveillance camera and, and they're not wearing masks. They're just blatantly doing it. And you know, and you know, we have to protect those small businesses. Those small businesses, not only do they drive the local and neighborhood economy, but they help to define our neighborhoods. And um, we have to do something to help those, those, those small and large business owners who were being subjected to this. Um, I don't know what you do. Um, I know the legislature is looking at this and concerned about it. Law enforcement is too. Um, you know, I'm just a country lawyer, but I, I know we have to address it. Uh, you know, I mean, the reforms we have in California are new. And, um, and you know, we're all working through them, um, trying to achieve the legislative objective, which is fairness and equity um, and due process on the one hand and, at the, and on the other hand, and at the same time to protect the community. Um, and, you know, and it's a process and it's a learning process. I don't know if I answered your question, but, you know, I'm just perplexed about all of this. Uh, and uh, I know a lot of other people are, but in the end, at the end of the day, uh, what matters is fairness. And, um, you know, we have to continue to tweak the system to make sure it's fair to defendants, uh, to victims, and to the community as a whole. Now, I took a look at your website, campaign website, and I saw endorsements from Gil Garcetti and Kim Goldman, Lance Ito. Yes. It's tough to talk to Chris Darden without mentioning the O.J. Simpson trial to some degree, right? What impact do you think that trial had on the way Americans generally perceive how the criminal justice system works? Well, you know, when the verdict came in back in 1995, it was clear that um, there was a, a racial divide in terms of who felt he was guilty, who felt he wasn't, in terms of who felt he uh, was properly vindicated in court and, and those who felt uh, that he got away with, you know, double murder. Um, you know, in, in California back then, in the 90s, we watched Rodney King without mercy and we watched the officers walk away and we had existed in an environment where for years um, you know the sort of heavy-handed operation hammer 
uh, type law enforcement have been practiced in, you know, in communities of color in Los Angeles. And so, um, you know, you had this perfect storm of resentment and uh, lack of trust in the system. Uh, when the uh, O.J. Simpson case came up and came out and, you know, I think people, I think the verdict forced people to discuss the question or the issue of there being two systems of justice, uh, you know, in this country and, and in California, you know, there's one for the rich. Many people felt one for, and a different one for the poor. Um, you know, I think that uh, for a lot of people, it was an educational moment, a teaching moment. Um, it allowed people to see what actually goes on in court, which nobody had really seen before or paid attention to. Um, and, and, and everybody could see that justice is not perfect. You know, the law is not perfect. Um, you know, the best thing I think, uh, or, or a few things that came out of the Simpson case was a focus was a focus on domestic abuse all across the country. There are millions of women who live in uh, who live in homes and who are at risk of being uh, injured or beaten or murdered or abused. And, you know, we, sh we, we shined the light on that issue. And I think that that was important. And I think people learned uh, a lot from that. Of course, um, you know, people say, well, I want justice. I want justice. Well, the only way to get justice is to participate and to be a constant observer. You know, I, I, I picked a jury. I was picking a jury and there were, there was a panel of about 90 potential jurors. And of all those potential jurors, all 90, there was one African-American male, one potential juror was an African-American male out of 90, out of 90 people. And perhaps another five uh, were African-American women out of 90 potential jurors. And I'll tell you what, when we finally got to the African-American male, the only one on the panel, it turned out that he was an FBI agent. And this was a, a criminal case involving 50 counts of assault with, with a deadly weapon and armed robbery. Um, where are my brothers? You know, I mean, we have to participate. We have to be present. We have to be gatekeepers uh, to ensure that, you know, there is fairness and there is justice. And, and, and I don't say that just to, you know, African-Americans or people of color, but everybody. Everybody, we we all have to come down. Even I go down there when I get a jury summons. I go down there. They won't they won't take me. They won't pick me. But let me tell you, I I, I show up, and we all have to show. How has your reputation in the general public, as a result of the OJ trial, impacted your work as a professor, as a defense lawyer, as a trial lawyer, as somebody who is obviously and has been practicing law for all these years, how has what you did in that case impacted your career going forward? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, the Simpson verdict was such a hot topic issue back, uh, you know, back in the 90s. And, and I left the DA's office 
I literally packed up my office the day uh, after the verdict. And I, I, I had begun teaching uh, at Southwestern University Law School and I went on to become an associate professor. And so for five years, I was teaching in the classroom and, uh, and moving away from the verdict and moving toward um, healing myself. And I suppose in some ways, healing my reputation, you know, in, in the local community. Uh, after uh, teaching, I, I uh, became a civil rights attorney, which I always wanted to be. And I uh, became a criminal law defense attorney. And, you know, when you look at my record, what you will see is, is not just me standing up for victims and OJ Simpson, but you will see me standing up for the rule of law. Um, you'll see me representing uh, uh, defendants who uh, uh, are not exactly desirable or favored. I mean, what you see is you see me standing up for the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, a rule of law, the right to due process, the right to the effective assistance of counsel. And, you know, and over time, I think my reputation has changed. I, uh, I'm not sure what it was before. I know some people loved Chris Darden and some people didn't, and it's probably the same way today, but I hope my, I have a reputation of being someone uh, who will stand up for the Constitution and, and, stand, uh, and stand up to power, because that is the reputation that I would like to have. That's how I'd like to be, you know, not just for O.J. Simpson. I mean, I've represented so many people in the last 25 years and so many kinds of different cases. You know, I'd, I, you know I'd, I'd be in a situation where I'm ra where I'm representing someone who is accused of killing a, a popular rapper and I'm catching all kinds of hell in the public, you know, but at the same time, I'm representing someone who ran over a child and nobody says anything, you know, um, uh, about that. Um, I don't really care about my, rep my, my, rep my uh, reputation in the community you know i what i care about is people knowing that you know i'm, I'm going to stand up i'm going to stand up for poor people i'm going to stand up for the rule of law i'm, I'm going to stand up for fairness you know um a lot of things were said you know i, I was looking at a um johnny cochran's book from the 90s i think it was called journey to justice and i'll tell you that he inscribed a, a copy of his book to me. I haven't really, I haven't really talked about this anywhere, but let me talk about it. It was 1996, and you know, a number of us had written books after Simpson, and I was uh, on a book tour, and I found myself in a small radio station in East Texas. And as I finished my interview, and I'm walking out, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton is walking in. I never met Reverend Sharpton and we stopped and we talked a while and, you know, and, you know, and Reverend Sharpton said to me, he said, you know, um, it's not a great thing to have, you know, two brothers, two high profile uh, black lawyers uh, at odds with each other. Uh, that's not a great thing, you know, for the community. And, you know, and I'd admired Johnny Cochran for years. And, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, you, you know, you're right, Reverend, you're, you're right. And um, and he was going to see Johnny in a couple of days uh, somewhere, and um, I, I I inscribed the book to Johnny, and Johnny inscribed the book to me. And I was thinking about him the other day, and I and I picked up his book, and he said, and he said, in his inscription to me, he said, you know, 
we've been through a lot. A lot uh, has been done and a lot has been said. And he said, but at the end of the day, you know, just know that uh, you're, you're my brother. Uh, I love you and I respect you. And, um, and I always want good things for you. And that's what he basically said. Um, and I've carried that book around for almost 30 years. Um, and uh, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to me. I know people think, well, you know, this and that, but it means a lot to me. And, uh, and I believe, and I believe what he said. I, I believe it. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, all we can do is stand on our values and principle and do what we were, you know, committed to doing, you know, him and me, which is pursue justice. And look, I will say, this trial was the most well-known, is the most well-known trial probably in American history. And you were a part of that. And you did good work. And you did work over an extended period of time. And, and certainly there are some negatives and you caught some flack and other things. But that's got to be a good feeling. That's a part of your career that very few people get to emulate, if any, ever. Uh, and that's got to be something that makes you feel good at the end of the day as as as, as a lawyer. And it does. And it does. Um, you know, I say to people, um, whatever you think about me, I walk the walk. I talk the talk. And I, I back it up. Um, I am not perfect. Lord knows I am not perfect. Not as a human being, not as a man, certainly not as a lawyer. But uh, my love for my community and my love for these, these constitutional principles of fairness and justice and due process and equality is unbending. And, um, and uh, you know, and I'm proud. You know, I'm proud of it. Uh, I tell you, it hurts sometimes. Uh, it made for a lot of lonely days and nights and 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 the like. Uh, it was life altering. But at the end of the day, uh, when I'm done, you know, I, I want to feel like those those NFL players in the Super Bowl, you know, those those track stars in the Olympics. I wanna I wanna feel like I left it all on the field, left it all on the track. I gave it all that I could, and it's only so much I can do as an individual and as an individual lawyer, but I know that I made a difference in the lives of a whole lot of people. And I know that I met a lot of people who, for whom after I left, their life was better, or they were in a better position than they were when I found them. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and, and that's how, you know, you know, you were anointed. That's how you know that, You've uh, you've done the work. You've done the job. And I like to think that I have. Um, and I'm not asking anybody to celebrate me or celebrate that um, because I've quietly gone about just being a criminal law defense attorney for 25 years. And I don't usually 
take high profile cases. I've, I've turned down a lot of cases. A lot of lawyers would give their right arm for it uh, because my gift isn't in being in the media. You know, my gift is in saving people who can't save themselves and speaking for people who either can't speak for themselves or, or who, if they speak, aren't heard. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's what I've tried to give back, uh, you know, to this community and to the law. And, um, you know, nobody's going to name a school after me or a street or, or anything like that. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to leave it on the field. Leave it on the track, you know, San Jose State, 1977, 400 meters, you know, and, you know, I'm just going to do the thing and, 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 you know, and God willing, when I, when I walk away from this, I will have done it, uh, everything I was supposed to. Mr. Darden, I think you're being humble. You're a part of American history. You cemented your place in American history. You did that with your hard work and your effort. And I thank you for speaking with me finding the time to share your insights, your experience, your positions on various topics. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.